Thanks for tuning in to Goopfellas. We'd like to give a quick shout out to our friends at Tesler Watches who helped make today's episode possible. I am definitely a watch guy. I like a classic, simple, easy to read watch that's durable. And I like watches that look good when they're dressed up and when they're worn with a more casual outfit. Tesla watches are all of these things, but now they're taking it a step further. Their new Tesla watch is actually a wearable wellness device. Tesla designed this watch with proprietary Tesla technology, a turbo chip that works in tandem with the battery of the watch to mimic Earth's natural frequency, which is pretty cool. To learn more about Tesla technology, head to teslarwatches.com. That's T-E-S-L-A-R-W-A-T-C-H-E-S.com. And right now you can get 20% off your purchase using code GOOP20. That's G-O-O-P-T-W-O-Z-E-R-O. Just shop before January 31st. Hey, bud. How are you? What's up, Seamus? I'm doing awesome. How about yourself? Good. Super excited about today's conversation. We're going to be talking with Dr. Will Sue. And as you know, uh, about six months ago or seven months ago, I did MDMA guided therapy and, uh, and I had a really remarkably positive experience from it. And, yeah. um, and so, I'm, you know, Will's, Will's a good friend of mine as well. And we've talked a lot about my experience. I've learned a lot from him about psychedelic therapy. But uh, I'm, I'm just, this is a great conversation because we, we jump right into it and we cover a ton of really interesting stuff. And, yeah, uh, I, I think he's the are, expert. Be, yeah. Who better to go to when it comes to psychedelics and mental health? He's the top of my list for sure. Yep. He's, uh, he's, he's one of our favorites at Goop and he's, uh, he's a very good friend of ours. Dr. Sue is involved in a fascinating method for treating depression. It's MDMA guided therapy. Dr. Sue's been trained by MAPS.org in MDMA-assisted psychotherapy and provides ketamine-facilitated psychotherapy. Today, we learned all about how psychedelics can enhance psychotherapy. Yeah, so if anybody is interested in learning about psychedelics, we are going to cover it. And something that Dr. Sue refers to as the psychedelic spectrum, which I love that, and learning about the different strong points of the different psychedelics, how to use it, who shouldn't use it. And we talk about anger and rage Mm -hmm. and how to heal from that. So it's a really amazing conversation. Yeah, it's a great conversation. We talk a lot about trauma, all sorts of great stuff. All right, let's jump into it. Hey, Will, Sue, thanks for joining us. Yes, thanks for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's good to to be back with the Goop family. And I'm in the company of multiple Wills. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Will Squared. Yeah, I'm I'm (laughs) surrounded by it's a Will sandwich. (laughs) (laughs) So I love your work. I'm a major fan of all the stuff you're doing. And uh, basically, I mean, as a functional medicine practitioner, I mean, kudos to you. I I just can't say enough about all the stuff that you're getting out there into the world. And basically, for people that don't know, can we kind of maybe kick it off with what your work is and what your your mission, as far as professionally uh, speaking, what that is? Yeah, sure. I'll... um so by professionally, by training, I'm a psychiatrist, currently based in New York City. So I went to medical school in Southern California at UCLA. Um, at that time, also, I was very interested in science. And so I got a PhD. I ended up going to Oxford in the United Kingdom. I got a PhD in immunology and then ended up you know, initially wanting to be a surgeon, but then eventually uh, decided on psychiatry. And so I went to Harvard to do my training in psychiatry. This is back in 2011. Um, and at that time I wanted to be sort of a basic science researcher. I wanted to work in a lab. I wanted to develop new medicines, um, cause I really believed in pharmacology. I was definitely atheist agnostic at that time, which is just <laughs> funny looking back now, <laughs> but yeah, that's what I thought really the answer was <laughs> to mental illness. And so within a couple of years though of training, I, I really found out how terrible and how, um, just our system isn't working right now. Myself, I got depressed, I got suicidal um, almost dropped out and really, but was in my early thirties. And I was like, there's no more degrees to get. There's like, what can I go back and do? And so really took a deep dive into my own mental health, really went to therapy for the first time. And then sort of serendipitously around that same time, psychedelics were starting to pick up. Um, one of the guys, Rick Doblin, who really has been spearheading the whole thing, lived a couple blocks from the hospital. I randomly got introduced to him. And he got me into the training for MDMA, which I've completed. Um, 
So yeah, and then I got really interested in psychedelics and psychotherapy. And so I practice mm -hmm. in New York City. I use uh, ketamine with many, if not most, of my psychotherapy patients mm -hmm. right now. Um, and I'm working on prepping a, a study for MDMA-assisted therapy for fibromyalgia. Um, I'll also be, I'll be moving to Los Angeles soon. Um, I want to get more into workshops and training because there just seems to be more and more of a demand for, for help. And I think there's a limit to what the one-on-one -on -one work. So that's a long introduction mm -hmm. to who, who I am and kind of where I'm at now. So the, the MDMA yeah. guided therapy in the clinics that exist right now that are in, they're in clinical trials, correct? Uh, yes. And how many, how many centers are there now? Um, there's somewhere, last count, somewhere probably between 12 and 14 across the country and two in Canada. And how far away do you think we are from FDA approval to be able to do this uh, as like conventional therapy treatment? Yeah. So what most of what MAPS, which is the larger nonprofit that's running the mm -hmm. MDMA studies, they're saying 2021 is what they're thinking right now. But uh -huh. usually mm -hmm. things get delayed. So I'd say more like 22 or 23, uh -huh. but not, not too, too far off. Yeah. I've heard you quote uh, Stanislav Grof, right? Uh -huh. He's kind of the godfather of psychedelics. Absolutely. I heard you yeah. call him that. But I've heard you define it, uh, psychedelics as nonspecific amplifiers of the unconscious. Mm -hmm. Can you expound mm -hmm. on that? Like what psychedelics are for people that have a vague idea, but it's kind of nebulous and not sure what they are? Yeah, thanks. I, I think it's it's a great it's a great thing to address because you know right now everyone's saying psychedelics and psychedelics and psychedelic assisted therapy, but really what's going to start happening is that we see that they're they're not all created equal. You know, on mm -hmm. one end of the spectrum, you've got something like MDMA, which I think is a beautiful starter for your average Westerner, meaning mm -hmm. someone who's not super spiritual, who's Christian, who isn't a believer, say, in past lives or, or reincarnation, who just wants to feel better, you know, because mm -hmm. MDMA, right. the way I kind of describe it is, it is it stays on the plane of this reality. Almost everything that comes up with without exception is something that happened from birth to mm -hmm. now. It's not really considered a psychedelic, right? Um, I consider it with, with Stan's definition, I uh -huh. consider it a psychedelic, okay. but, you know, kind of the hardcore people who are like very into to the vocabulary will say, no, it's not. But again, mm -hmm. I just think it's anything that opens up our conscious state out, mm -hmm. out of the usual. On the other end of the spectrum, you've got something like ayahuasca or smoke DMT, where very regularly you'll go in and you're going to, you know, connect with other entities or, or you know, people will appear to turn into animals or you'll have a dead relative that comes back and talks to you, mm -hmm. where that's what I would call a transpersonal experience. And so that in mm -hmm. and of itself can be pretty jarring. So, you know, there's, there's a large expanse of, of possibilities. And then you get to things like diagnosis, right? Some things that are more anxiety-based, um, like PTSD, mm -hmm. or if someone has a dissociative disorder, it might be helpful to have a certain type of psychedelic, say, more like ketamine. Ketamine has a natural anti-anxiolytic component where it's calming, mm -hmm. um, which is part of the reason why it's addictive. But if you have someone that has a lot of anxiety, then and you give them something like ketamine, that might be a very like peaceful entry into the whole psychedelic space instead mm -hmm. of, say, sending them off to Peru and you're traveling and you're in, uh, in the middle of the jungle taking the psychedelic tea with a, you know, with a healer from another culture. Mm -hmm. Right. So Can there's sort of a psychedelic spectrum, right? I mean, you're saying MDMA, low-dose ketamine on one end, it's more of the plane on, of this existence. And yes. then psilocybin and ayahuasca would be on the other end. Yes. Is that, am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, that's and the way. From, yeah. And from sort of a therapeutic standpoint, a prescriptive standpoint, you would use the different modalities for different different sort of emotional trauma or dif different um, psychological issues? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think, the, again, I, I think low-dose ketamine, MDMA tend to be the gentlest. And so that's, mm -hmm. you know, if I think most people, again, that that's a beautiful entry into psychedelic therapy mm -hmm. for most people. Yeah, I heard someone say once that, if they're you know they're going to these ayahuasca ceremonies and, and the the advice was to pick your shaman like you would pick your neurosurgeon. Uh, <laughs> what do you think of the sort of the growing industry of the ayahuasca ceremonies and all that's going on in the wellness space in that world? Yeah, um, I, I I love that you know, the thought around this, because there is so many ayahuasca retreats popping up right now, mm -hmm. not just retreats. I, I think there was like some study that was done about seven or eight years ago between, in between New York City and San Francisco at that time, it was estimated there was two to 300 ayahuasca ceremonies every weekend. And that has definitely picked wow. up now. So people are just, and I live in New York City, so I'm mm -hmm. aware of a lot of these circles. I mean, people are doing them one off, like, oh, get out of work at five or six, and I'm going to do ayahuasca on a Friday night at eight o'clock. 
and then you have brunch with your friends the next weekend. Like, you know, it's not really, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's funny, but it's also like, I can't, like, I cannot believe people are doing this because mm-hmm. I mean, this yeah. is very serious stuff. I mean, you're opening up the unconscious. And so a lot of people are left feeling worse after and it's not something then, and then what do you do? You know, you pay some person a few hundred dollars that's, right. and, you're, and you're putting your trust in them and you don't really know who they are or, or what their what, training yeah, is. Or, or what the substance is either. Exactly. Yeah. Great point. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I definitely think that, I mean, I think that the the whole, and you and I have talked about this a lot, but the whole, the, the process of integration is so incredibly important, both Absolutely. before doing uh, a therapy session and afterwards. So kind of preparing for it and then understanding, having a sense as to what you, I mean, my, my own, I, I've done MDMA guided therapy mm-hmm. and I was trying to get from my therapist going into it, what is this going to be like? And she mm-hmm. kept kind of saying, well, we don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you're you're going to find out when you're there. Yeah. Um, but the reintegration was really important to me, being able to kind of reflect on that, look back on notes that she had taken, recordings mm-hmm. that we had made during the session, and to be able to kind of process that and kind of look at it. And yeah. I found my, my personal experience was that the the benefit of it, of it over time continued to kind of reveal itself yeah. as time went on. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's it's beautiful. I mean, I think, you know, when I, you know, prepare someone for ketamine, for instance, that I mm-hmm. do the work with, I will at least have three to four pre-sessions before that, mm-hmm. have the mm-hmm. session. And then, you know, usually people are my long-term clients, so they continue with me. But that to me is like the minimum just to say, okay, these are the different scenarios that can come up. This is how you can get through them. You know, this is how important deep breathing is, noticing mm-hmm. what's happening in the body. How do you get out of like these, these you know, uh, kind of mind um, mind loops? Like because mm-hmm. sometimes you're in the middle of a, of a psychedelic experience that feels very timeless and then you're stuck in this like very painful mind loop. And so there's different tricks of, of getting yourself out of that. And so mm-hmm. that's the preparation. And then that's the integration, right? You know, I mm-hmm. think about... You know, I, I always say something like 80, 90% of the in, the long-term benefit is in the sober weeks and months after of doing work. And that's mm-hmm. when you make sense of it and you can make it really a part of your everyday life. How do these substances, I mean, MDMA in particular or, or ayahuasca, tap into a state of consciousness that we can't really access easily on our own? And why is it, because I've heard a lot of people describe, like the, the MDMA, for instance, is a tool, but it's not always the the right tool and you don't necessarily need the tool to be able to reap the same sorts of, of results. Yeah. And so, I mean, I, I'm in complete agreement with, you know, I, I think these are simply a tool. Uh, I do think they're an incredibly powerful tool. What I like to say about, um, psychedelics is that they are, um, neither necessary nor they're sufficient, mm-hmm. but they're mm-hmm. incredibly powerful. Uh-huh. Um, you know, and, and if we want to talk about how it does it, I mean, most of the psychedelics, uh, meaning LSD, psilocybin, DMT, which is ayahuasca, what's in ayahuasca, mm-hmm. work through the 5-HT2A receptor, or they're postulated, right? No one's actually done a living experiment, but, you know, you take a brain slice and then you see where the different molecules attach. But really, we don't know when it comes down to it. Mm-hmm. And I'm not such a big... Uh, even though I'm a doctor, I'm very much not focused on the neuroscience per se, because mm-hmm. a lot of the science that's out there, which is um, medical doctors hate to say it, but we really don't know what's going on. There's, there's been, there was a study that was done in the top five medical journals that said something like within five years, 50% of the studies have been shown to be not true anymore. And that's in the top medical journals, you know, mm-hmm. and for instance, mm-hmm. serotonin has never been shown to actually be the cause of depression, a decrease. It's right. been this hypothesis and everyone's mm-hmm. jumped on it. And there's an entire, you know, th- I think three of the last, sorry, three of the top five selling medications mm-hmm. are antidepressants. Right. And if anything, yeah. I think what we're seeing, the rise in depression and suicide is actually evidence that this doesn't actually work, right? But medicine right. Is, is very scared. People's careers are built on this. You've got the whole pharma movement that that's saying this is it. The reason I'm bringing that up is so we can talk 5-HT2A, but say if you or I or any of us were to take, if we had one batch of LSD, we took one, you know, uh, dose of LSD today, and we had an experience that was audio, visual, physical, and we took the exact, you know, the, the, the dose right next to it in two weeks from now, it would be a completely different experience. And so really... Mm-hmm. Again, we can talk about what's the biological mechanism, but we really have no idea. Right. It's really, right. Who, who knows what other components are, are playing right. a role. As a functional medicine practitioner, I like on a daily basis, I'm telling people and trying to educate people that we can't separate 
mental health from physical health. Like mental health is physical health. Absolutely. And this sort of bi-directional relationship between our thoughts and emotions and our, our physiology. And I, I've heard you talk a little bit about this and I'm fascinated to know more about it. Like the anecdotal stories coming out of these ayahuasca ceremonies of people like healed from health problems and things put into remission and they can't explain how, but it's, it's happening. Can you talk a little bit about what you're hearing? Yeah, I mean, I can tell you about sort. I mean, one of the stories that I've, I mean, I've seen video, and this is one of the clients that was in the MDMA trials. But I can also talk about my own experience because I had a massive physical um, symptom that was with me my entire life until I had an MDMA session and then had the integration. But you know, one of the stories that I, that definitely is ingrained in my mind was during the training videos um, with Maps. There was this woman who had had a, a longstanding um, pain issue in her hips. Uh, meaning like she was in her like late 40s or 50s and for decades from her like, you know, early 20s, late teens had a lot of significant pain in her hips. And she had tried opiates and that didn't help. And she had just, you know, and, and she had had a repeated childhood sexual trauma, I mean, which you usually think of being like worse than most, you know, mm-hmm. meaning it was the same person time after time again in childhood, which usually um, fucks with like our sense of security. Can we mm-hmm. curse on oh, you? Yeah, yeah, okay, sure. okay. yeah. And so really, this is a woman who had just carried that all of her life. And I remember going in the session or the vi- watching the video on this session. And one of the things that's important for psychedelics is body work. Mm-hmm. Um, which isn't something that a lot of people talk about. Right. And it's still a lot of people don't know about body work yet. And I think that's part of the reason. Like somatic therapy. and Yeah, somatic therapy, whether it's hands-on or hands-off. Because mm-hmm. inevitably people have physical symptoms during sessions just like we do in everyday life. Right. And, and I think they need to be addressed um, with practitioners that know how to do it. I don't mm-hmm. encourage people to do body work if they don't know how to do it. But anyway, so there was, there was a time in this um, session where we were watching this woman and the the pain was coming up. There was no content coming up in her mind though. She wasn't remembering a trauma. She wasn't having any flashbacks. She was just like, I the pain is getting worse and worse. And mm-hmm. so the, the two practitioners worked with her. They put her in a position that amplified the pain, which is a theme in psychedelic therapy. You want to amplify things. You don't want to shut them down. Mm-hmm. And so they set her up with this specific technique and all of a sudden they were like, okay, well, when you're ready, you know, push with your hips. And so she got ready, you know, did the breathing and then she pushed. And then all of a sudden when she pushed, she started screaming and having a flashback. She's like, get the fuck off of me. I never asked for this. You're not supposed oh. to be doing this. You know, and that's the part that wanted to come out. That's the what, what had been wanting to be expressed since it was happening. But she mm-hmm. was again a, a child when this was all occurring. <clears throat> And I remember they showed the video from the next day of this woman and she came in and looked like a new woman. She looked like 15 years younger. The pain was gone and it did not come back again. Hmm. You know, and I have a sort of a similar experience. Not, I I didn't suffer from, from the chronic pain as much as her, but I had this chest pain that would come up where every time I broke up with someone or, or felt really lonely, it's that pain that would keep me up at three or four in the morning, those mm-hmm. worst hours when we're by ourselves, we don't know what we're doing. And, you know, thoughts of depression or of suicide came up for me. And I had, I mm-hmm. thought that was just part of who I was. And I had a similar experience where I, that came up during my legal MDMA session. And in, after the integration in a few weeks, that, that pain is gone and, and that's never come back for me. Mm-hmm. It's been almost, wow. you know, three years. So, yeah. yeah there's, and there's, yeah, there's other stuff like, I mean, you hear about also people healing, you know, end-stage cancers, um, you know, uh, chronic illness, in- inflammatory illnesses like, uh, you know, uh, bowel stuff, lupus, MS. Mm-hmm. That That's more on the spectrum of ayahuasca mm-hmm. um, when mm-hmm. you get like really ingrained physical illness that gets better. Um, but yeah, it, right. you really hear it all over the place. Hmm. Well, I'm, it makes sense. I mean, just from a looking at autoimmunity and the connection between trauma and how that can trigger for some people things like autoimmune conditions and how uh-huh. healing that trauma yeah. can cause the immune system to downregulate and stop attacking yeah. the body. And yeah. it makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's the interesting thing is like no doctor will deny that stress makes inflammatory illnesses worse. Right. But if you tell them, hey, that MDMA or psilocybin or ayahuasca is going to make it better, like everyone starts freaking out. Right. <laughs> it's yeah. Really right. Weird. right. <laughs> yeah. But I think it's also important to recognize that it's not a panacea either. It's not like this isn't one size fits all and this is good for everybody because I'm sure there are, yeah. I mean, how do you, how do you deal with people, for instance, who could potentially benefit from MDMA guided therapy, but 
may have like a past history of, of substance abuse and mm -hmm. feel very skeptical about mm -hmm. the idea of, and, and I think, you know, we can yeah. agree that obviously psychedelics are not, they're not, there's no physical dependency that's, that's, that's formed through psychedelics. They're, they're not a narcotic. However, I think for a lot of people who are, are sober, they still represent sort of a, a different, you know, a different part of their life. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of hesitation around that. And, and interestingly, mostly from the clients. That that was something mm -hmm. I was surprised by. There's definitely a hesitation by practitioners, but clients themselves will say, hey, I've been addicted to XYZ. I'm mm -hmm. worried about taking um, something like MDMA usually mm -hmm. that has a history of, of being something fun. Right. Um, but I think usually what happens, you know, as long as a client doesn't have an active substance abuse issue, I don't really think of it as a, as a major problem. And actually mm -hmm. one of the most interesting and, and beautiful quotes I remember from one of the clients that's been in the PTSD studies with MDMA, um, because usually what happens is 80 percent of the time you're either really sad you're revisiting old memories you're scared your body's terrified you're feeling an int intense shame or something and so it's there's not it's not pleasant and so this patient mm -hmm. would say he's like i can't believe they call this ecstasy because yeah. like when you do it in a therapeutic setting it's actually not a very pleasant experience and so it's highly not, emotional yeah, yeah you don't leave mm -hmm. wanting to be like oh i'm going to do this next weekend so mm -hmm. i kind of remind them about that that this is just a completely different experience in using it uh, mm -hmm. you know in a party setting yeah Right. So the people that are, you would consider better candidates for psychedelic therapy, as far as the research is concerned, it's people with PTSD, like resistant PTSD, people with resistant depression. Is there anybody else that you think, obviously every case is different, but just generally speaking, what type of conditions do you think tend to be better candidates for psychedelics? I honestly, I, I'm on the end of the spectrum that I think almost Everyone. I mean, I, no, no, I think most, if not all, mental illness can be really helped with mm -hmm. really quality psychedelic-assisted therapy. Got it. Um, there's some things I think that are more amenable to quicker things. I think things that are more mind and emotion and don't have such a physical component to it. Mm -hmm. Like, that's why I'm very interested in doing this study with fibromyalgia, because I think of fibromyalgia is being like a more physical manifestation of PTSD. Right, right. Where, um, where some of the stuff that's more in the mind and that's in the narrative like depression or anxiety, I think it's just, um, it, it, and especially with the, the way the training is for most therapists and psychiatrists these days, again, it's, it's mostly mind. It's not so much mm -hmm. somatics. Mm -hmm. Lends itself to right now being um, better for, for, yeah, your average, what we would call, uh, you know, again, bread and butter, depression, anxiety, mm -hmm. PTSD sort of stuff. But I, I do think the potential is out there. Um, you know, uh, yeah, I think it would be amazing one day to do, say, MDMA for first break psychosis or even bipolar one. That's the other thing I was mm -hmm. thinking is a lot of people like, oh, you should never give a psychedelic to someone that's had a manic episode. But I'm like, no, I mean, actually, yeah, I've had a manic episode. Actually, I don't think I've ever said mm -hmm. that before, but I'm happy <laughs> to share it. But I, you know, my father died when I was... Um, Old side 28. And I had yeah. my first real manic episode after that. And people would have been like, this guy should never, ever touch a psychedelic, but I've yeah. never had one ever since, you know, and, and but doctors don't really understand that it's at its source. Like it's just a different way of handling stress, right? I got, mm -hmm. I went into mania because I couldn't handle the depression. So all of a sudden my mind was telling me, oh my God, you're perfect. You can talk to anyone, like, uh, you know, invest in anything and, and you'll, you know, everything's going to be a success, you know, mm -hmm. but it wasn't some, I mean, is it mixed with chemical in the brain? Sure. But it's, it's really, it came from a place of trauma. And mm -hmm. so, yeah. yeah. I actually really like your sort of democratization of this whole space. Like you, you think eventually it could be outside of the confines of of mainstream medicine and with right i mean this is something that people should be able to, should be able to do on their own safely i think so. i mean if with training you know um i think i'm probably one of the few doctors out there that think that you know we really should be training people meaning the lay public to to do to mm -hmm. sit for each other to guide themselves potentially mm -hmm. because the reality is everyone's doing it now. Not, I mean, obviously not literally everyone, but there is a ton of people out there using psychedelics every single right. weekend now that we're never using them. And I have a ton of calls every week from people where it went bad, mm -hmm. where they're like either I or my family member is incredibly, you know, suicidal now, or I'm in a manic state. And I, I don't tend to take patients like that because mm -hmm. I, I, to me, that's just, it's just, um, Many reasons I don't do that, but um, but it's hard because that that's happening a lot. And you know, as we said, okay, so maybe twenty twenty one or twenty twenty two doesn't sound that far off right. from MDMA being legal. But the number of therapists who are going to be trained, who are going to have clinics that are open, 
who and you know are going to be very limited. I think MAPS at this point has trained 350, 400 therapists, but you have to work mm -hmm. in pairs. So that means if all of them are ready to open up in mm -hmm. two or three years, you've got 200 pr uh, teams across the country. Mm -hmm. And that's if all of them are ready and, and they're not. Like thousands of people that, yeah. or, or tens of thousands yeah. of people that or are hundreds of thousands, yeah, hundreds. I would say. Even and, right. and, and on top of that, there's going to be a massive market for it. Right. So, you know, none of these practitioners are going to have to, you know, um, charge really low fees. And, and, and the way things are going with, all the investment that I'm seeing, there's numerous decks from from venture capitalists right now on ketamine clinics, and they're saying they're going to open psilocybin clinics after that. Mm -hmm. No one's looking, it seems, I mean, there's definitely a couple organizations out there like MAPS who are saying we're going to try to keep the cost low, but a lot of people are looking at it with dollar signs. Sure. And there's a lot of people from the marijuana industry that are really trying to jump in on, right. on the psychedelic healing right now. And meaning, so mm. it's going to be very expensive and it's going to be very limited. And so I think we should be training people. Now, I think doesn't doesn't Maps have the they have the the manufacturing rights to MDMA? Yeah, they have the exclusive rights to um, for I think the first seven years after uh -huh. it, it become it goes to market. But you know, Rick Doblin is again a close friend of mine. He's not taking a penny of it from his for him or his family. He's put all the money back into a public benefit corporation, and so wow. he's he's really doing it the right way. Uh -huh. We're on the other end with psilocybin. You've got um, you know a, now what's a quarter billion dollar company. You know, with some investment from Peter Thiel with this company named Compass, that's really doing it the other way with a lot, which, which is big, big money and big investment. Mm -hmm. and so, um, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. I don't necessarily think either is the wrong way, but it's just definitely it's everything is moving very quickly right now. Do you think that Big Pharma is going to try to get into the game as well? Yeah, I mean, I consider Compass Big Pharma at okay. this point. I mean, it's a quarter billion dollar company. They're they're running large clinical trials. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's here already. Wow. Mm. Yeah. At this point, you've probably caught on. We talk about wellness a lot on Goopfellas, but for me, it really never gets old. I find that there is always something new to learn about how we can maximize our well-being. And wellness has a lot to do with how we use technology. I think we're all guilty of letting our phones and our laptops disrupt our health on multiple levels, sleep being one of them. I just learned about some fascinating new technology that wants to help with this, the Tesla watch, probably the best friend of the modern technology user. The Tesla watch uses special technology and a turbo chip to mimic the Earth's natural frequency. The idea is that the watch could help keep the body's own electromagnetic field in balance. If we can help our body function more optimally down to the watches we wear, I'm all for it. To learn more about the wearable wellness and Teslar technology, head to teslarwatches.com. And right now, you can get 20% off using code GOOP20 when you shop before January 31st. I wanted to ask you about DMT, uh, the compound uh -huh. in ayahuasca. Uh -huh. uh, people call it the spirit molecule or the God molecule. And I've had friends that have tried it and ayahuasca. Uh -huh. And a lot of them, if if not all of them to some degree, have this same experience of like of dying and seeing God and seeing these similar sort of metaphysical spiritual things like you mentioned earlier. Do you think, what's your opinion on this? Is it just the fact that we... It's a neurochemical thing because we're releasing DMT endogenously when we dream and during death, or is it something metaphysical, spiritual, or is it a bit of both? What's your experience on that? <laughs> and I love this question, but it's, um, I mean, it's one I love pondering, honestly. So uh, just to clarify a little bit, so there's two kind of common forms of DMT that people refer to. The, the one that people call DMT that we've been talking about, its chemical name is NNDMT. That is the one that's in ayahuasca, and mm -hmm. people refer to as the spirit molecule. There's another okay. one called 5-MeO-DMT, yeah. which is in the Sonoran toad, which, you know, you kind of milk the, the, the glands of this toad, and you collect that. That's the one they consider the god molecule. And they're actually completely different. Um, and, and even though they both have DMT in the name, they're, the way they function is very different. Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting, you know, the way... You know, many people will describe DMT as that, you know, within seconds, if you smoke it or with either of them, really, that everything that you connect to this reality, meaning gravity, ego, time, all goes away within seconds. Mm -hmm. You know, with 5-MeO, visuals also go away. Auditory goes away. Usually with, the you know, the, the standard DMT, those remain intact. My personal opinion, so, you know, I, I think of 
you know, standard DMT, which is in an ayahuasca, is essentially a very condensed version of, of an ayahuasca experience. And ayahuasca, I have had a chance to do um, down in Peru a few times at a, at a retreat center. And I've gone pretty deep with that. And my, my thought, I guess personally, I guess you're, I, scientifically, I don't know. But personally, right. I don't know. I, I'm very spiritual at this point, even though I was, you know, atheist agnostic when I first started this journey myself, you know, five years ago. You know, I like to think of it as the place that we come from and the place that we will go to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I it's a place of timelessness, egolessness. Entering it is scary, I think, because we're losing ego. But by, by mm-hmm. nature, there's an ego death there. But once you get through that, it's this beautiful place of peace and oneness and, you know, what we would call love. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's my personal opinion, you know. And when I read and learn more about Buddhism and Hinduism and they talk about, you know, these different bardos and spaces, it it feels very similar to what people have been describing. Mm -hmm. But obviously there's no scientific backing for that. I'm fascinated by that. I mean, you because you were raised Jehovah's Witness, you left the church at like 15, right? And then you became atheist, agnostic. Were the psychedelics part of sort of your refinding spirituality and God, or however you want to describe that? Was did it play a part of you seeing that truth for yourself? A thousand percent for me. Like to me, you know, I, I went into this just because I was like, I'm depressed and I'm suicidal. And I'm going to kill myself, basically. And life sucks. Mm -hmm. I have a bunch of loans and Mm -hmm. I made a mistake. I was just trying to feel better. You know, Mm -hmm. I I didn't go into this, you know, looking for enlightenment. I just wanted to get a good night's sleep, Mm -hmm. be able to date someone, find a nice girlfriend, um, be happy with a job (laughs) as a professor. And that's all I went into it wanting. Um, And it's interesting because... You know, through that, I, you know, I used to really get in tons of arguments with my mom. I mean, I used to say, you know, just some really horrible things about the church, but I've really come to see how that is her connection to spirit and oneness. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, is it, you know, sometimes can the church do, you know, painful things to people? Yeah. But I mean, I see that within the psychedelic community too, you know, so it's, it's, there's been a lot of closeness that's come between me and my mom and that. And kind of related to, interestingly, what I see with clients and why I talk about MDMA and ketamine being interesting, you know, ways to introduce psychedelics to the Western world is that I think most people come now to, you know, especially post Michael Pollan, they come to seek psychedelic treatment because they just want to feel better like I mm-hmm. did. Ultimately, all of them, at least the ones that I've worked with, once they've done that work, get super curious about spirituality. Why are we here? Right. What's the meaning of life? And then they go on to want to do things like mushrooms and ayahuasca. Mm-hmm. So it kind of just seems mm-hmm. to naturally happen with with everyone. It's like if you could just feel safe in the world and secure in the world, meaning with you know your family, your income, all of a sudden you start wondering, like, why are we here? And you ask mm-hmm. the bigger questions. How It's so hard for, I mean... You know, we're having this conversation about something that's relatively inaccessible to most people, at mm-hmm. least legally. Yeah. Now, um, how do if somebody is curious about um, guided therapy, how do you suggest even beginning to you know start that process finding finding a therapist, finding a center where they could do it, or finding a reputable underground therapist? Because I know a lot of this happens underground. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this this is a tough one. Um, obviously, I, I have no recommendations for underground. I mean, part of me is like, oh, because I'm a doctor and I can't say that. But honestly, it's just because I don't. Right. I also just don't know a good method for it. You know, even, you know, now there's more people who are popping up and, and you know, even advertising that they do um, psychedelic uh, integration therapy. Mm-hmm. So I would actually say, and, and MAPS is doing a good job of training more people. CIIS, which is like a spiritual university in the Bay Area, they actually have a training program for therapists. So there's more people out there. So I would say at least starting with the directories. So mm-hmm. maps.org has a directory of pra- practitioners. There's this website called psychedelic.support, which has a good um, practitioner directory. And then the third one is the Kriya Institute, K-R-I-Y-A, mm-hmm. which is a ketamine institute. They also have a practitioner directory. At least, you know, those people are trained therapists and they've done some training. But th- that does not also equal that they're, you know, really good at guiding people. Mm-hmm. But um, I think the number one thing is to go with your gut and trust your gut. Mm-hmm. A lot of people right now, like that I see had negative experiences, like they, they went to like a retreat and 
in Amsterdam and they're like, but that's all I had. It didn't feel great, but you know, I was really, you know, just wanting to get better. They go there and they felt traumatized, mm -hmm. but, that, but they didn't go with mm -hmm. their gut. So I would say the most important thing, whether there's someone that's above ground or underground mm -hmm. is going with your gut and, and not rushing. If someone just doesn't feel trustworthy and it mm -hmm. doesn't feel safe, just don't do it. And so I would say that's, that's number one. Yeah. How would you, like, what is your version of a ketamine clinic and what does that look like? What does the treatment look like? Yeah. So I, you know, my, you know, not to probably blast people out there, but so, so I, there's like four <laughs> in the country that I really trust. One's called Ember Health in Brooklyn, which is run by a friend of mine. Um, I think he has the best model. It's interesting. Mm -hmm. He opened his about exactly a year ago. His first thought was to like open three or four. He's already full and could easily open those, but he's slowed it way down because he, no, he's really careful about who he mm -hmm. hires and he spends um, the entire time with the patient during the ketamine experience mm -hmm. as a physician versus there's another uh, clinic in New York, which is probably the most popular one, meaning they just have a high throughput where they have like five or six people going in different rooms. They give you a panic button. So you're, there's no one in the room with you. Uh -huh. um, you know, you talk to a doctor for five minutes um, and a nurse puts in the IV and there's no eye mask, no music. Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Grunman at Ember Health, on the other hand, again, he's with you the entire time. He makes sure every single patient he sees, because he's not a psychiatrist, has a therapist or a psychiatrist, or he just doesn't work with them. Uh -huh. Meaning he emphasizes that mm -hmm. there's someone there before and after the treatments that's going to take care of the person. Uh -huh. He uses an eye mask. He uses uh, scent. You know, he sets intentions. He plays music. So that to me is the minimum of what people should look for is, uh -huh. is that, you know, um, yeah. and if you're interested in, in, in ketamine therapy, I mean, do you, how do you start? Do you start by seeing a psychiatrist who can, can prescribe this for you? I mean, how does it, how does it work? What's yeah. the, what's the, what are, what are the nuts and bolts? If like, I want to go and try ketamine therapy, what do I do? Yeah. So I, again, I would start at the, if it's ketamine, I would start at the Kriya Institute website. I think, mm -hmm. again, that is a set of practitioners that have identified themselves as using ketamine. Um, um, many of them have gone through training. There is one institute called the, I think it's called the Ketamine Research Institute, where they're going out and training psychiatrists and psychologists. They've actually done a pretty large number of them already um, all over the country. And so mm -hmm. there are people who... Um, have some training in ketamine. So I would start there and go to the directory and, and look for someone mm -hmm. in your area. Um, but if, you know, if one wanted to, if one has a psychiatrist or a therapist already, who's at least interested in open mm -hmm. um, to, to having you go to a clinic and willing to support, I mean, that, that would be kind of second best. And it, even though if it's, you know, not the ideal clinic, because really, again, there's only like three in the country that I know, mm -hmm. um, it can still be very helpful. You know, you just want to make sure mm -hmm. that your your kind of consistent practitioner is very much uh, willing to work and with the, you. And there are like three different ways of administering ketamine, right? Um, there's there's four common ways. There's, okay. there's probably like six overall ways, that, but, mm -hmm. but many of them are not used. So the most common is IV. And then you have IM, which is uh, kind of like a flu shot intramuscular. And mm -hmm. then there's oral lozenges, which is probably... And then, and nasal then, spray too, And right? then the nasal spray, right. which is sort of the one that's being pushed by pharma right now. Okay. I actually think the, that one happens to be the one that's least useful uh -huh. um, and has the highest addiction potential. But um, so mm. yeah, so th those are the four common ones. I, we were talking about accessibility and people like getting the benefits of this stuff. I'm really fascinated about the research around breath work and it eliciting a lot of the same mm. sort of responses in some people. Mm -hmm. I've seen mm -hmm. it happen yeah. uh, at different retreats where in a breathwork session, people have similar uh, benefits as the psychedelics. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, that's interesting because, you know, there's a form of uh, breathwork called holotropic breathwork that was founded by Stan Groff, who, again, was really the pioneer of, of psychedelic therapy. Um, and just a quick background. So holotropic breathwork, he really he created it after LSD was made illegal because he had been working for 14 years with LSD legally and then you know the mm -hmm. government made it illegal so and he created this thing called holotropic breathwork and I've I've uh, been a participant in many workshops at this point and I've also assisted in many and people will describe the exact same experiences not as consistently it's not like everybody has them but right. um they, they, a lot of people will describe the same space that they say that they have seen on DMT or ayahuasca. Um, Can you so, explain how holo holotropic breathwork works? Yeah, so holotropic breathwork has kind of five major components. It's breathwork, it's music, uh, it's group work, it's art or drawing a mandala uh -huh. at the end, and um, body work. 
are, okay. are the five components. So uh -huh. it kind of, it's essentially it encompasses everything that you would want to do during a psychedelic session, except uh -huh. the, the thing that's helping you enter is just really uh, intense, fast breathing. Mm -hmm. So mm. Interesting. So, I mean, can that happen in one session? I've seen people have the same sort of trips in one session, but what's a typical, like, do people do breath work weekly, daily? Like, what's what's a typical routine look yeah. like for there? The way most holotropic breath work is supposed to be done, which is not the way most it, it's most practiced, is it's usually done at retreats that are at least about three days long, um, where you go somewhere, you're away from your area, and then, you know, you sit for someone during their session and then, you know, in the morning and then say they'll sit for you um, and then you kind of repeat the next day. Mm -hmm. But the community portion, which Stan is big on, is because you've built now this relationship with people, again, over two or three mm -hmm. days at a retreat. As opposed to, you know, a lot of people are doing them right before, you know, oh, we're going to do holotropic breath work for 15 minutes before we start yoga. Or right. they'll do like a one-hour session on a Friday night, um, you know, at a, at a studio just uh, in LA or something. And, and, you know, it's not, it's, I, I, you know, again, I, I'm not against it. I think it's getting people more and more interested and, and aware. I mean, even the fact that, you know, a lot of people are talking about breath work, I think is great. But, um, you know, again, I think there's, there's just the, the more, you know, we can put into it, the more we're, we're able to, to stay with it, even for a few you know, hours at yeah. least, mm -hmm. um, I think was, is generally more effective. We, um, we're talking about mental health and trauma and, Something that I, I see in my clinic a lot is like when it comes to trauma, a lot of times with men, their response is anger and mm. they're sort of holding on to this mm. like palpable, almost palpable rage and anger. And I, I think about it like as a society, we can, we kind of excuse that for guys. Like that's the yeah. one emotion that we're able to we're express. To be, we have permission to express anger. Yeah, this is yeah. huge. Yeah. And it's, it's huge. oftentimes sort of masking this fear and, and shame. And can you talk about that and what you've seen in your seeing patients? Yeah, I mean, I actually I'll say I won't talk about what I'll see in patients. This I'll talk about what happened to me because this this is okay. near, very near and dear to my heart. Um, this really is what jump started my healing. So I'm 39 right now, but at 27, so this is around the time my father got diagnosed with cancer. I was in medical school, and I was in a relationship, and I will admit that I was incredibly emotionally abusive to this woman. We had dated for about seven and a half years, and again, you think it you know, I said it to her, you know, and I, you know, we, we've all, or most of us have been in these situations where, you know, we learn what our partners, you know, what, 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 what's most hurtful to them, what's more, most sensitive to them. And when we get in painful situations and arguments, we use it against them. And I was in this situation for seven and a half years. I mean, not, not all of it, but for, for the bulk of this. And it was to the point where, um, I was like having these violent thoughts and, this is the first time I ever went to therapy, even though it was very brief. And this is in, in West LA when I was in medical school. And I remember I'd never told any of my friends about these situations. I, I was very ashamed of, of the anger and what would happen. And I would, of course, always be like, oh, I'm sorry, I'll never happen again. But of course, it always happened again. And so eventually I went and told my therapist about this. But I remember the day like I was at like in his waiting room, I'm like, fuck, I'm, I'm going to tell him this. Like, am I going to get in trouble? Is he going to keep seeing me? Is he going to mm -hmm. think I'm the worst person ever? But it was the key thing that I, if there was one thing that jump started my whole healing, it was this. And this is years before I discovered psychedelics. Um, and I remember what he told me was, and I was like, yeah, these are the thoughts I'm having. This is what's happening. These are the things I'm saying. And he was like, it's like, you're never going to do anything like that. And I was shocked. I'm like, what? <laughs> He's like, you're doing this. He's like, you're not doing it because you're strong. He's like, you're incredibly weak. He's like, you're, when you're feeling like that, you're weak. He's like, and if you think about like when roosters are about to fight or peacocks are about to fight, they puff themselves up, they get loud, they make their feathers very big. He's like, that's all you're doing. He's like, he's like, you're, he's like, you're, you're, he's like, you're incredibly hurt. And I was never, ever able to allow myself to be angry again. I mean, I would get angry, but I would, mm -hmm. I would always feel like, fuck. I'm weak right now. Mm -hmm. And so that jump started for me, this thought or th this, this concept that anger is a secondary emotion. Sure. When we feel sad, when we feel scared, when we feel ashamed, and, and you guys are right, these are things that men are not allowed to feel. Right. So we default we, to anger. Yeah. We, we go to anger because yeah. it's acceptable. We feel strong. Mm -hmm. And I think this is something that is rampant in culture right now. Again, if we look to mm -hmm. the highest office in the world right now, Trump is, is angry. He can do whatever yeah. the fuck he wants. He can say whatever he wants. 
and he's still yeah, there because but it's acceptable. It's yeah. acceptable. But yeah. if he were to like all of a sudden have a breakdown tomorrow and someone saw him crying under the his desk at the Oval Office because he got really scared of Putin, we would be like, this guy's unfit for office. Let's get him out of here. Right. But right. anger is totally acceptable. And I think we need to deal with it. You know, one of the things I remember, one of the reasons I was hardest to, to even admit that to that therapist was like, God, am I going to get arrested? I remember like mm-hmm. watching like Maury Povich and stuff when I was in, in you know, in when I was a kid and I'm like, they yeah. would out the abusive boyfriend and like, get the, get him out of here. And yeah. like, and right. I'd be like, well, well, what do I do then? Like, how do we actually help men that are experiencing yeah. like these types of yeah. um, emotions and anger? And like, we've got to start addressing it. It's, it's sad totally. too because I, I, often it, I find that it happens in, in a lot of relationships where I, my, I think your experience, I can mirror your experience. You know, a lot of relationships where men will be angry and that's when they're hurt in a relationship. Yeah. And it, it, it kind of takes the expression of that emotion to actually for anyone to pay attention. Mm. And that's really unfortunate because I find that oftentimes that uh, obviously that leads to a really destructive relationship. It's funny. I've talked to my friends before. And we talk about emotions and anger, and I've heard multiple friends over the years say, well, you know, yeah, I, I get angry, or yeah, like I'm angry. I don't show emotion, and they don't even think of, <laughs> exactly. they don't think anger is an emotion. Right. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're emotionless. I'm not emotional, I'm but just it's angry. Just, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it's a really sad thing, and it's it's interesting because I, if, if I, I mean, I have a beautiful social circle now, I get along with, like, everyone essentially but if you met anyone that knew me in late high school mm-hmm. college grad school they would be like will's an asshole he's super competitive like i don't want to be around him and i actually don't have almost any friends from that time period nah. but i tell people this story now and they're like yeah right they're like that was never you but like <laughs> and, and that's when you're an atheist too. yeah exactly <laughs> you're like you're the angry atheist with no friends yeah but honestly <laughs> these days like it almost like stands out to me when i'm like i might get right. pretty irritated like once every few weeks or something, but mm-hmm. you know, but now I cry. Like I, up until a few years ago, I never cried and I cry like relatively frequently now, meaning mm-hmm. like a few times a month and I just let it happen. I'll be sitting on a subway in New York, something will hit me and I'll just let the tears flow and I don't care like anymore. You know, I just, mm-hmm. or if I feel really ashamed, I'll talk to my friends about it. Or if I'm sad, I mm-hmm. just express it. And it's just, right. the anger has just melted away, but it really took that that digging into it every time and saying, I'm owning this shit. The problem like that um, anger is mine. It's not the right. fault of the person outside. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And it's, I don't know, again, I, I think really it's beautiful that we're talking about this. And I think, you know, um, really, I think when, when men can really start healing this part, it will really change society. Amen. Yeah, I agree. I mean, we see this toxic masculinity so, so much. Like what are some things that, that guys can do to start, healing from that pain that they're kind of showing out as this anger, this toxic sort of rage that they're going through. Yeah. You know, this is a tough one. I think, you know, I mean, I think you guys are examples. I think this podcast is, is an example of, and it's not that it's not out there. Men are starting to talk about it, but it's still not, um, you know, I think it's not spelled out because I think it's, you know, I think that's why for me, this it's a simple one. Anger is secondary. Anytime you're feeling anger, look what's under it. Right. Forgive yourself too we all still get angry, but once you like settle down and think about it, like go back and dig in what was happening under it. Um, you know, I think therapists are pretty well versed that this is the case, but getting men into therapy is a whole, whole nother ball game. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, more public figures are talking about it. Um, you have athletes that are talking about, you know, their depression and anxiety. So, um, you know, just out in the lobby in the waiting room, um, can't remember who that famous swimmer is. Um, the, the, Michael Phelps. Michael Phelps. He was yeah. like on a, at the cover of the magazine in the waiting room talking about, talking about therapy, you know, therapy. Yeah. And so it's happening more and more. But I would just say find safe places to express, um, emotionally safe places to express your feelings, you know. And, and if it's not with friends, you know, have it be a therapist or, or elsewhere. Will, thanks so much. This is, <laughs> we could talk about this for hours. This is great. I'm really, I'm really glad to, to, to have spent this time with you here in the studio, but even and feel more fortunate to have you as a friend. Thank you guys for listening to our conversation with Dr. Will Sue. This conversation was really incredible. Uh, I, you know, we we started by talking about 
guided psychedelic therapy and how it's becoming, um, there's just more awareness around it and we're seeing mm -hmm. a huge amount of success through it. But then we jumped into a whole bunch of other stuff and we talked about rage and trauma, healing through psychedelic therapy and the correlation. I loved your point, Will, about the correlation between mental health and physical health and actually seeing cases of people, including in Will's own case, of overcoming physical trauma or, or mm -hmm. physical ailments through uh, psychotherapy, which is I thought was great. Yeah. I, to me, what was fascinating is this sort of other side of that psychedelic spectrum where people are having these spiritual experiences. It mm -hmm. trips me out, for lack of a better word, <laughs> word there. But just people see across the world, they're seeing the same sort of spiritual things. It's really, it's uh, trippy. Can I use yeah. that pun anymore? Yeah, exactly. But it's... <laughs> For, for more information about Dr. Will Sue, head to willsuemd.com. That's S-I-U. And you can see more from him at goop.com slash goopfellas. If you're interested in psychedelic assisted therapy, you can find more information at maps.org. That's M-A-P-S. Got a question you'd like us to answer? The Goop team is keeping a running list for us, so just hit them up at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. At the end of every episode, we'll be answering a question from one of you guys. If you have a question about us or about men and wellness or really anything else is on your mind, just let us know. As a functional medicine practitioner, it's been fun seeing the questions that have already come in on different food philosophies and ways to approach health and well-being. And I love to talk about food and cooking and, well, reality is anything. I just love to talk. So send your questions over to the Goop team on Instagram or Facebook. As Goop likes to say, nothing is off limits. All right, time for another edition of Ask Me Anything. Brad wants to know, what do you suggest doing after binging during a sports game? I'm assuming he's not playing the sports game, but he's watching it. Because <laughs> <laughs> if he's binging and playing at the same time, uh, then he might be, I mean, I, I, he might puke, yeah. puke. So that's probably what he's talking about. Very athletic. Yeah, exactly. Unless it's um, a hot dog eating contest and then binging is the sports <laughs> game. That's true. Good point. You know, Kelly Levesque had a good answer to this. Remember mm -hmm. when we were talking about this idea of if you do something, like if you if you make a bad decision, a bad food decision, rather than penalizing yourself, sort of counteract that with two really good decisions? Yeah, I like that. Yeah. It's a really good Mod, you know, moderate way to look at it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. So, what would you what would you suggest? I mean, because maybe something detoxifying. Yeah, I think that you could really. I, I agree with you in the sense that I would look at the larger picture of mm -hmm. what the binging is coming from, and maybe I'm reading too much into this, Brad, who asked the question. Mm -hmm. But I would really look at your relationship with food and uh, kind of assess that. But uh, we're all human; uh, we all kind of eat things that maybe aren't always the best for us. So some things to consider from just a straight nutritional medicine standpoint would be something like activated charcoal. It's a supplement you can take to kind mm -hmm. of support detox pathways, healthy digestion, help with bloating after you maybe ate too much of that junk food. So that's something to consider. You heard it here, Brad. Have some charcoal. That's it for today. Thanks for hanging out with us. Will and I would love to know what you think about Goop Fellas. If you have a chance, please rate and review the podcast here. And if you like what you're hearing, hit subscribe and pass it along to a friend. To see more, head to goop.com slash goopfellas. And we hope you'll be here again next Wednesday. Talk soon.